Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. website for details. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good whatever the hell time of day it is uh, where you are listening from. So there's been a little bit of a gap with the old podcasting from me, and that's just because I've been crazy busy doing lots of other stuff. Now, that is not me saying I'm neglecting the podcast or neglecting your ears. Uh, It's just been one of those couple of week periods where I've just not really had the time, the energy, or even the content, really, to, to put on a pair of headphones and do a show. I spent a few days last week sitting in an actual room with Rob, the co-host, and we were going to record a podcast, but then we had a whole bunch of other stuff that we wanted to to cover. I did a whole bunch of filming of a bunch of motorbikes driving around his uh, his town, and just basically it's my shitty excuse of going, you know what, I'm neglecting the podcast. But I have been busy. This is sort of the second podcast that I've done. Actually, the third so let me give you a bit of an overview of my day. And I'm not going to turn this into a solo episode. There is one of those to come at some point. But this morning I recorded a conversation between myself and a wonderful guy called Alan Fletcher. Uh, those who are familiar with the Australian soap opera Neighbours will know him as the actor who plays Carl Kennedy. Uh, so I had a, I think about 17 minutes, I think it turned out as. So we had a chat and that will be coming out as a podcast very, very soon. You can find that on the From Page to Screen YouTube channel if you want the video. And uh, the video ones are always worth checking out. I was also a guest on the Golden Globus Theatre podcast. I always like hanging around with those guys. On Saturday, uh, we chatted about one of my favourite episodes of Miami Vice, Hostile Takeover. And so I would recommend that you go subscribe to the Golden Globus Uh, podcast as well so I've been basically just whoring myself out on other people's channels I guess I should really get back to doing a from page to screen podcast now for those who've been listening to the show for a few years you will have heard Sean O'Banion on my podcast quite a few times now Sean did and still does have his own podcast called stage 16 podcast and season one was was very good it was himself and Mr. Sean Roberts that were the co-hosts. Mr. Roberts then sort of decided not to do the podcast anymore, and Sean O'Banion very kindly asked me if I would jump in and be the second chair on that. We've recorded five episodes in total, and what you're going to hear after I've finished talking here is the fifth episode. Um, I could probably go back and maybe share the first four episodes, but a lot of the conversation we had we have in those early episodes are time specific. However, episode five was recorded in August, so it's not too time specific. I asked Sean if it was okay for me to share that episode on this feed in the hope that some of you wonderful listeners uh, will not only get to hear more of the stuff I talk about, but also maybe jump over to the Stage 16 podcast and click that subscribe button on your podcast apps and you can catch up with me uh, on there once a month. I am not going to do the thing where I always share 
the Stage 16 podcast episode on this feed. So beyond this episode, if you do want to hear Sean and I chatting uh, on the Stage 16 podcast, do subscribe to Stage 16 podcast. That is also the Twitter name. Sorry, Elon. I'm still going to call it Twitter. That is the Twitter uh, name for that too. I hope you enjoy it. I always enjoy chatting with Sean O'Banion and have done for years. I do want to get Sean back on my podcast sometime, but he is very, very busy. And so when we do manage to have a catch up, usually it's that monthly sort of conversation where it becomes a stage 16 podcast. But, you know, uh, there are a whole bunch of shows coming up on the from page to screen uh, podcast feed. It's usually quite rare that I take a break as long as I have but I've been concentrating a lot on just trying to get a few other things up and running Uh, um, it's been nearly three months since I finished my night job and whilst I don't regret doing it I do regret not having the income so I'm very quickly behind the background trying to work out uh, what's next but enough about me Uh, I'm going to just introduce episode five of season two of the Stage 16 podcast. We're back at, uh, I have no idea what date it is. I think I know the month, I think it's August. But beyond that, don't ask me any date questions because I haven't a clue. But we're back. How are you? How's (laughs) life? Stage 16 is back. Yeah, um... Well, I guess you're not you're not watching the clock as much anymore because you're you're not uh, as they say gainfully employed. <laughs> and that feels it feels weird. It's just over two months since I quit. Yeah. Uh, f- for the first week, you're like, "What have I done? <laughs> what have I done? I've not got an income. Oh no!" Uh, but then the, the whole stress of the job kindly reminded me why I quit. So I've been catching right. up on a whole bunch of things, listening to podcasts. Um, but I've not, not been super busy recording lots and lots of Stage 16 podcast episodes, so I'm guessing you've been busy. Yeah, yeah. I've been, um, well, it's been a lot. Of, I'm doing a lot of script consulting, which takes a lot of time, and, and um, doing a, a bit of writing on my own and also with a partner, and taking advantage of the the sort of strike period to just indulge on other things. Um the project that I may be co-directing in the UK is also sort of just on hold at the moment because we can't really start casting. We're going to try to engage some casting directors just to have an advanced conversation about availability and interest and things like that probably next month. But the, the you know, <laughs> nobody knows what the future holds and nobody knows what the future holds regarding, you know, the sort of seasonality of the business, which normally uh, would begin. Well, I guess it technically has because I've already gotten some emails from the studios, but we have awards season, which is now from the end of August through, you know, that runs all the way through the Oscars, which would be in either February or March. I'm not sure when that'll be or if they're going to bump them as well. And then in the midst of that, so in September, you have Toronto Film Festival. And then I think you have Telluride maybe right after that. And then then it's uh, Sundance in January. So we have basically like from mid-September until like January or February, 
the town is just kind of dead. <laughs> like things do happen and there are things, you know, still companies will hear pitches and stuff, but kind of like nobody's head is really in the game because anybody who's got anything in play at a major festival or or in the awards game is really just focused on that. So, um, you know, we're about to just take an even bigger pause. So we have to maximize whatever time we can on the things that we can separate of the strike and then hope for the best. And the strikes still going on. Those wonderful men and women waving the placards are still standing their ground. Bless them. Yeah, I saw Amy Adams was out there the other day with a sign that just said human, which is like a callback to arrival, which was kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, it's brutal. I think probably people will lose their houses and leave the business, I guess, maybe leave the state of California or leave New York City or Brooklyn or wherever they are because they just, I don't I don't know how any of them are doing it. I've no, and the studios are just trying to obviously turn the public against these these terrible actors and writers who are striking for just no reason whatsoever, and they're stopping us from watching things like Dune Part Two. How dare these actors? Yeah, and writers do these well, things? that's that's the thing too. That right, like as soon as Warner Brothers shifted that, which I had a feeling they would, but when they did shifted it from November, it became very very clear that the studios do not see any end to this strike before the holidays, basically. Do you think, though, I mean, obviously it's a case of who blinks first. Are the writers and the actors going to go, okay, you win, just give us a little pittance, or the studios are going to have to go, fine, we'll pay you. But neither at the minute seem to even show any sign of blinking. Uh, Honestly, I feel like there will have to at some point be like federal intervention, maybe. Because, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, the AMPTP is is at least has taken a meeting with the Writers Guild, but they haven't even begun to address the actors yet at all. Like, they're not, there's just no attempt at negotiation happening. And and uh, what is theirs, but from what I heard, the last meeting with the WGA people was like all of the studio heads got together and basically said, you know, you guys are just not getting it. And this is a deal that you should just accept and get everybody, you know, the actors will follow if you go. So, like, let's get everyone back to work. And it's like, no, this percentage, the percentage that they're asking for, for one thing, is so minuscule as compared to what the studios make or even what the CEOs make. And um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't see the the workers giving in. The biggest issues here are literally existential issues for the craft, right? If AI can be used, I mean, I got to tell you, I go on, I go on Instagram. There are, there are celebrities on Instagram now, you know, famous personalities and stuff that are not people and really, yeah, already. And, and those, those AI generated creations are are being given deals for modeling and advertising so the people who've created that with the ai who claim copyright on whatever they've created because they fed in the information to generate the the male model or the female model uh they are now getting paid by licensing that 
AI to, you know, whatever, Pepsi Cola or whatever. So it's already starting in very small ways. And if the actors let it go now, they'll never get it back. No, they won't. You can't put something back in the box once it's come out. But it's like, I remember years ago, and this is a film you worked on, I believe, uh, Sim 1 or Simone, depending on what yeah, you yeah, want to call it. Watch, if, you know, watching that back in the day when it came out, you'd be like, this is kind of a cool sci-fi movie, this one. Never happened because everybody would see through all this. We're now living in that from what you mentioned about Instagram and stuff. It's, it's Yeah, there's scary. some like, yeah, you have to, you have to be very careful now to look at the like the whatever the the bio is because some of them say like digital creator or something i can't remember the terminology but you have to look at that and even then sometimes i'm like well wait a minute does that mean that this is an actual person and they they do like tiktok or whatever so they're they're a digital creator or does that mean that the thing that i'm looking at is not a is not a person because i honestly can't tell anymore Facebook defaulted to a job title of digital creator because I remember seeing it on mine and you can go in and change it because I'm like, look, if I'm typing on a computer, then obviously I'm a digital creator because I'm typing. So everybody's a digital creator, but I think that's like a default thing that they put in. But yeah, I mean, I I can't remember what, what exactly or who, but there are some men and women on this app that are no longer actual human beings. That's just mind blowing, isn't it? Really, that yeah. And the weird thing is, I think I read like one of them started already a couple of years ago, and like this AI girl is like a, a musician, you know, quote unquote, and a, like a multi hyphenate AI. And I can't remember the name. Damn it, I can't remember it because I, you know, all fifteen of our listeners could go right now. But um, it's like this Asian girl, and apparently the AI is getting endorsement deals for things. And, and, and so even like high fashion models in the real world are like, Jesus. So now we're going to lose jobs to AI too. Now, now they don't, what, we're not going to do actual photo shoots anymore. You can just say, put the model in front of a blue background or put her on a beach and blah, blah, blah. And it's there and it's done in like seven seconds. And (laughs) like, it's a strange time in the world for, anybody and by the way any ceo who thinks that he or she has job security in the world of ai i i don't think so because ai can do their jobs easier than it could do the job of writing you know trying to emulate human emotion and human thought as opposed to being a ceo and analyzing cost reports over you know quarters and whatever (laughs) so yeah they ought to be quaking in their boots too we're living in a weird world i mean we obviously both love technology because we're using it now and we watch films on various mediums and stuff but part of me would just love to go back to the movie world where i would queue up outside a cinema not knowing what i was about to watch it's not been spoiled and i could just have a discussion with actual real people afterwards and go did you like this film yes i did no i didn't and then move on rather than this whole digital weird social media universe that we're currently living in now i love it but i also hate it in equal yeah amounts. i mean every it's like anything right like the iphone like how amazing is the iphone right but with any technology comes a, a, a downside part of the downside is just a sort of addiction to it that we're constantly on it because anytime we need an answer to anything the answer is right there so why you know like of course just reach in your pocket and get on the internet and look something up and 
I mean, literally the answer to everything. So, but what we have to do as a society, I think, is really what the writers and the actors are doing right now. If anything, they're they're the canary in the coal mine, right? Like going first into the breach and saying like, we got to get a handle on this thing because it's it it's already in motion and it's kind of an unstoppable evolution, right? I mean, James Cameron warned us about it in 84. Yeah, we still you didn't know? listen. Like, we still didn't listen. <laughs> we're still, and there were still people out there that were like, hey, let's find a way to create one of those. <laughs> like, it's like Terminator 1, he warned us. We didn't yeah, listen. that's what I mean. Like, Terminator 80, 2, 84. he warned us again. 84, he was like, no, 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 guys, this is a bad news because sooner or later it does become aware. You know what I mean? Like, that's what happens. Yeah. I showed my son, which I didn't actually, maybe you watched it, uh, Peter Pan and Wendy on Disney. Yeah, not, not saying that. It wasn't, I, I didn't, I mean, I don't, maybe because I'm comparing to like Hook, which I actually mm -hmm. do love. It was kind of boring. My son was into it kind of, but. It just, th there were a lot of moments right in the beginning, right when they start flying to Neverland, where you're like, well, that's very clearly, you know, that's not even the kids on, you know, wires on a blue screen. Like, that's just a digital scanned version of those kids. And as I was thinking it, I was like, yeah, so those kids at this age have already been scanned for that movie. And those scans belong to Disney and Disney, in theory, could like drop them in anywhere into anything. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and so that's what the actors are dealing with as an existential thing is like you scan us once and you own our avatar in perpetuity. Like that's insane. And, and they're and like, for background yes, people too. Yeah. And the studios, of course, <laughs> I mean, like, listen, you've, that's you've the, already and, been paid for that one day. We got you in. What's the problem? Uh, yeah. yeah. And for the writers, that's exactly it. They're saying it's not that we're not going to hire real writers anymore. It's just that we'll have AI do the first draft and then you guys can come in and punch everything up for like two weeks. You know what I mean? And it's like, no way, man. <laughs> so Sean, the writer normally would, would you know, be working six months on a script and it's perfect. Six months. Brilliant. Now it's going to be, are you busy on Thursday, Sean? Because we'd like you to come in and just punch up this thing that our yeah, AI just, thing's just, generated for just, a day's pay. Exactly. Just go through... Uh, the whole thing on Thursday and any line that jumps out to you that you have a better version of, just give us an alt, you know, and yeah. that's exactly what it will be. And they will rely on that. I mean, we know this, that they, they're corporations, anything to do out of having to hire real people and pay into health insurance and things like that in the U S I mean, you don't have to worry in the, in the UK, but like, they're not, they're not going to do that if they don't have to, if they're not forced to. <laughs> and it still yeah. it still blows my mind that I will see people on Facebook go, these actors, they're all millionaires. What do they need even more money for? It's like, really? I kind of understand if they thought that at the beginning of this whole thing many, many months ago. But now there's been enough information out there that, you know what, there are millionaire actors, but it's a very small percentage of all actors. It's a tiny percentage. Yeah, it's like 1%. It's a little Something like, like the, you know, I mean, it's maybe yeah. less. And that is the thing. I was not uh, for a long time. Now I'm in, in the actors union. I'm in sag after. So if I was in LA, if I were in LA, I'd be out there striking with them. But I didn't make a lot of money uh, as a production assistant. I mean, I made barely enough to, to get by, which is why I tell people until I moved to Europe, I didn't, I didn't ever go on a holiday because I didn't think that I could spend the money, what little money I had put away 
if I spent it and then the next job pushed or you just went away entirely or whatever, now I'm in the hole because now I don't have the money that I had that I spent on, you know, Hawaii or whatever. So mm. for most people in the industry and even even the the union people, even grips, I mean, you know, the cost of living increases that went up in in major cities in LA and New York, the the um inflation, those people haven't gotten raises in a in a pretty long time. And so now it's like they're constantly playing catch up. And so anybody that thinks like, oh, they're all fat cats. No, they're not really at all. Only the very top two or three people in a cast are. Yeah, somebody could look at your filmography and just focus on a production assistant ones that you've done. They're like, that is an amazing filmography. And that is true. But it's not, you're, you know, you've not bought a mansion with each of those credits. No, I'll, I'll tell you something. Let me, let me, I'm going to look something up right now just for fun. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I did this one time. Somebody said, "Well, you you got money in the bank, right? You're you're doing okay." And I was like, <laughs> so "Where? You, why do you think that? Where do you get that from?" So let me see. <laughs> oh, you're laughing. Oh, <laughs> this is a website called NetWorthPost.org. It says Sean O'Banion net worth 2023, age, height, relationships, blah blah blah. It claims. That my net worth currently is 1.9 million US dollars. Oh, you're doing fine then, John. <laughs> what are you complaining about? <laughs> and the funny thing is, I can assure anyone listening to this, I have never in my life had even close to even $1 million, let alone $1.9 million. See, what it, what it is, I reckon you went out one night, you got drunk, and, and you, you just come it? home and you've, well, no, you've hidden it all under your mattress. So do you know when you think, oh, my mattress is a bit bumpy? <laughs> it's because there's $1.9 million under there that you'd forgotten about. I we all don't, do it. Like, I'm, do it. I don't know where, I legitimately don't know where they would get that figure from. <laughs> I, I mean, can imagine which orifice they've got it out of. I mean, listen, I, I was making, you know, not 1.9 1. 1. million. I was making $150 a day flat for for like 14 hours. I think. And 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 at the point that the California labor law changed that they had to pay me like what they call meal penalties if I had to miss lunch or something like that, they would give me one even though I'd supposed to be, you know, qualified for two meal penalties or they'd say, "Well, we you get one." I had no health insurance unless I paid for it out of pocket, I, you know, and I'm not, this was everybody's story. Um, it's not just me. It's all of my peers. Bill Hader at that point in his life had no health insurance and made 150 bucks a day. You could make more if you worked on commercials. commercials some, people will, some people will sit there with the calculators and go, well, $150 a day, if you do that for five days a week, every, you know, for 48 weeks of the year then that's this amount that's more than i get it's like most people in the film industry i'm guessing it's not a constant year-round job with two weeks worth of vacation no, well, that's that's the thing it's not so you've got to it's, save it's it, not like at all you work for you know most production assistants are not on a whole movie occasionally you can get hired and they'll say you know what we need somebody with us in prep so we'll bring you on in prep and then you'll just go right onto the set with us but as soon as the movie wraps, you know, that 
person doesn't go into post-production, which could be another year or whatever. So, so you're looking at, you know, on, I'm, I'm not talking about it like a Transformers movie or something, right? Where they're shooting for like nine months. I'm talking about the average movie probably shoots 50, 55 days. Dramas might shoot less. Dramas might shoot 35 days, something like that. So every 55 days you're out of work and you go on unemployment, which people have this real attitude about unemployment. That's that it's like, oh, you know how, I don't know, low class or something if you go on unemployment. But film industry people, it's the standard because it's taken out of your paycheck anyway. It's called in, in California, it's called UI, it's unemployment insurance. And so when the job ends, if you don't have another job, you automatically file. They don't pay you for two weeks. Once you've filed, they make you wait in the hopes that you'll just get another job. Yeah. But very often, you know, you didn't or because the the assistant directors are the people that I would work for when I was a PA, they were making good money. They were making, you know, five grand, 10 grand a week, which is great. And they, they deserve that money. They work very hard for it. But the difference was they would take vacations, you know, the ADs we'd get, we'd start getting to the end of a show and I'd be like, so what are you doing next? They'd be like, next, nothing, man. I'm going to surf in Vietnam. And I'd be like, oh, Right. Cool. How long are you doing that for? <laughs> you know, like Jesus Christ, please come back. Cause I need a job. And it was like that for, you know, a lot of department heads and, and particularly the union people. But I mean, just talking about that, the people who are really getting crushed now are production assistants. I'm fully supporting the strike. I, I pretty much support any uh, labor, <laughs> whether it's FedEx people or whatever, um, to make a fair wage and to get, you know, FedEx drivers, I guess, didn't have air conditioning in those trucks at all. Wow. And that was one of their negotiations was we want, we want trucks that have AC because now temperatures have gone up around the world and we're driving around these trucks and carrying stuff. At, it's hundred degrees every day and it's like 120 in that cab. But uh, when these things happen, there are other people who are not who have no benefit of a successful negotiation like PAs, they won't get anything out of this. <laughs> you know, when work goes up, they just get to go back to work if they're still able to hang and be in the business, but they don't get an increase out of it. They don't get anything. So those people, I mean, somebody said to me like now, what, if you were in LA, what would you be doing? And I said, well, I'd probably still for a day job, I'd be an assistant to an actor or a director. And they'd keep me on even if they're not making a movie i'd still be doing stuff but if i were a pa now i don't know i'd be homeless i guess if 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 i didn't you know go get a regular job or wasn't able to get a regular job somewhere so um yeah it's crazy it's crazy i wish the studios would just get it together and pay these people and let go of the ai thing because it's just a non-starter do you think the AI thing is bigger than the residual thing, or are they both equally, we want both of these? I don't. Somebody asked me the other day, I was in a clubhouse room, and somebody said, well, they're going to have to, they have to negotiate. That's what it is. It's a negotiation. I said, well, that's fine, except that, you know, the, the, they haven't, it's not like residuals just got taken away. 
they haven't had them since since the advent of streaming, which is now what are we a decade on of Netflix's existence? Much, yeah. And they used to before that. So so the the problem that people don't seem to understand is that it's the residuals are what used to make it a survivable job because you would make a show and sure there's there's law and order and svu and stuff like that that go on for 32 seasons most shows don't lost was what seven seasons uh that's great if you can get a show that lasts that long uh if you can't you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from and if you're making your career as a writer or trying to then you need the money from the residuals to last you however long it's going to take between that last job and your next. And that's whether you're the showrunner creator or you're just staff writer. There are staff writers working on shows now that are driving Uber. <laughs> you know, yeah. I read an article that one of the ladies who wrote on um, Orange is the New Black is mm -hmm. driving an Uber. And that show made Netflix. It did. It did. That is the show that's responsible for Netflix being as big as it became. You know, that and House of Cards, but Orange is New Black was bigger. Yeah. So, uh, and so, I, I read that because she went on a rant, didn't she? A genuine, much yeah, needed because rant she, about beca how because crazy it was. The people who preceded her in the business, the people who preceded Netflix, got residuals. Got If a show was successful, they, they got a piece of that profit. They, the people who made friends, you know, they, they retire off of friends. Jerry Seinfeld retires off of Seinfeld. That doesn't exist anymore. So the people who make the shows now who, who you love, who you're like, God, I love this show. I can't wait for more. Like they're getting paid for what they do at this moment, but they don't, they don't have any guarantee that they'll get another show on. Somebody I saw on Instagram or Twitter was saying, well, you know, when when an architect designs and builds a house you don't get paid every year that the house continues to stand and it's like yeah that's true but you can immediately go and just build another house you can you you take the profit from the first house and you go and begin to build a new house and you can keep doing that and generating but as a writer, you're dependent on studios or production companies to take you on and say, okay, we'll make this. And you can go out and pitch 50 companies and nobody wants to buy what you're selling. So you're just, you don't, don't have an income and you just don't, you know, that's it. Guillermo del Toro's, you know, all over Twitter lately saying the, not in television, obviously, but in film, he's saying the nature of a movie is to be unmade and that, most of the time his movies are passed on for years and years and years before they finally get made. So if a guy at that level doesn't know when his next movie is going to get made, like what does anybody else do? You do hear that a lot, especially with Del Toro where he's attached to this film and you go, Oh, I'm looking forward to watching that. And then it never comes out. He's definitely one of the filmmakers that springs to mind when you think whatever happened to that film that he was attached to never came yeah. out. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I don't, for whatever reason, I'm not, I'm not on the Guillermo train. I like him as a person. Uh, um, my opinion is that he's a, he's a really incredible art director and creature designer. <laughs> yeah. 
who is a director as well. But he's been Oscar nominated, and I I don't know, did he win? Did he win for Shape? Of yeah, Water? he I mean, won that, and I wasn't yeah. a huge fan. I like, I mean, I think Pan's Labyrinth is great. I like Pacific Rim. I haven't yet seen Nightmare Alley. So there's, there's a, you know, I'm not like, I haven't got any Del Toro posters around me or whatever, but I love the guy's enthusiasm. You know, whenever you're watching a documentary about movies, he usually pops up. He's like, yeah, uh, he, any, loves, he so loves, loves cinema. Him. He loves cinema. And I appreciate that about him. I'm, I'm just not a huge fan, but, but I, I don't, I'm not saying I saw any of this coming, but years and years ago, when the studio system started to collapse into corporations, and to be run by the people who were running the corporations as opposed to getting absorbed and then still allowing the film people to manage the farm. We started to see, for example, you know, there were, there were news reports of Spielberg going to India to get money to this company called Reliance for Dream, DreamWorks. Um, imagine Ron Howard and, and Brian Grazier, their, their deal at Universal went away. I mean, this is after like, you know, Oscar nominations for Apollo 13 and stuff like that. Like being kind of even for those guys who had success beginning in the late seventies, early eighties, like hitting the pinnacle of their careers in terms of respect and budgets and all of that. And all of a sudden their deal was taken away and they had to go around hat in hand to different places. And, and I was just like, Jesus, man, I mean, I maybe I'm coming up at the wrong time because if those guys have to yeah. go begging for pennies, what are the rest of us supposed to do? Because these are names, aren't they? I mean, if you had a, a cupboard full of money and Spielberg phones you up going, hey, Sean, you'd be like, how much do you want? How much do you want, David? I'll trust you. Well, you my know? partner actually had for, for some time, she because we were trying to raise money at one point for a slate of our own films, little, little small, you know, three to five million dollar movies. Let's let's try and raise a slate and we'll go out and we'll pitch our whole, you know, thing of like five movies or whatever. And um, we were looking at that and my partner said, and I, I do, I actually think it's a good idea. And in a sense, it may be what Megan Ellison did which was to say, you know what, I'm going to call up all of my favorite filmmakers and I'm going to ask them, what's the script that is in your garage that nobody else wanted to make? And I'm going to make that movie. So if I called Guillermo, I'd call him up and be like, hey, you still have that mountains in the mountains of madness uh, thing? Do you still want to do that? Or you still or have you let it go? You don't you don't love it anymore. And if he went, yeah. Okay, we're doing that. And I think that's what Megan did to some extent. She went to P.T. Anderson. She went to uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, can't think of his name right now. And I think that's a good idea. But but the thing is, nobody will take risk, really. And and Megan's cinematic education in working and producing for those filmmakers was probably amazing. But her brother's doing a lot better. <laughs> yeah. You know, Skydance, David Ellison backing Paramount as opposed to individual filmmakers and, and saying like, okay, I'm a producer now on the mission impossible movies. And I'm a producer now on blah, 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 star Trek, whatever he's doing quite well. And Annapurna pictures has all, but gone, <laughs> you know? So it's hard to say, but the, but that's the thing is you look at, and, and I do want to ask it cause I know we've probably seen a bunch of movies now since we last talked, but, um, indie costs 395 million before advertising. Yeah. My guess is easily another 150 
200 million on advertising. The movie is considered a flop. It's a bummer, but it is for 309. They could have made 10, 35 million dollar movies, 10, 35 million dollar movies. And just sort of like, I don't know that. I think I talked to you about that Warner brothers documentary on HBO, but they get to like episode three and they talk to Terry Semmel and Bob Daly. And they were the guys who sort of established that Warner brothers was a filmmaker studio because they would look at a script and go, it's a damn good script. I don't know if it'll, I, I don't know if it'll catch people. I don't know if it'll, if it's an audience movie, but you know what, we're going to make it anyway. So it's not so expensive. Let's make it and see what happens. They had some misses, but they absolutely had some hits over their, over their time managing that studio. And more than that, they created relationships with filmmakers who would say like, wow, those guys trusted me. Those guys let me go out and do make what I wanted. And it, that just doesn't exist anymore. So that's also why, and you and I have talked about this before, we get a lot of mediocre now. The The standard is kind of like, eh, it's fine. Yeah. It's good. We don't get, where are the greats? Where are the greats? They're just few and far between. I shared on, because I got into the whole Barbie Heimer thing. I, I've seen Oppenheimer. I haven't seen Barbie. I'll watch it at some point. But I just find it fascinating that this, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer somehow became twins, even though they're very different animals. And so I would quite get into seeing how the box office was going. How was it going to, was Barbie going to overtake Mario? So periodically on Facebook, I would share the box office mojo top 10 box office or, or whatever it was. And then people would comment on it. And I remember one guy saying, look at the top 10 films, look at them all. They're all sequels or remakes or Hollywood just doesn't make anything original anymore. And it's like, yeah, but they're the money makers. That's people that are going to watch these films. If you look at the films that came out this year, there's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of original films and ones that aren't IPs. Nobody goes to watch them. So people do blame the studios for making these uh, cookie cutter type movies. Well, but the, that, studio, the studios aren't making the original ones. That that's the thing, right? Like an indie movie, like the movies I made, we didn't, we don't play in Peoria, Illinois. We don't play in you know where you live because yeah. we we don't get a release there. And even if we did, we wouldn't be in a any any sort of major cinema. We'd be in some you know some archives or something. Yeah, some tiny little screen with like folding chairs or something. You know, so yeah. what what should be happening is the 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 Barbies and the Oppenheimers pay for the studios to do four little smaller movies. They keep a chunk of the money and they do another giant summer thing. But they should pour a little of that money down, 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 and let people make some smaller movies and take a take a chance. It would be like you you doing a Marvel movie because you go, I don't, I don't really want to make a Marvel movie. I'll make a Marvel movie because I'll get paid lots, and then the money that that makes, I can now make this little film about a music composer from Luxembourg that I've always wanted to make, and it'll be great, and people will love it. 
And then you go back and do another Marvel movie so you could do your film about the, the cat that was found in an airplane in Hong Kong or yeah. something, that type yeah. of thing. One for me, one for you, sort yeah. of thing. I mean, that's, and that, for years, that that was the traditional, I mean, that's the, like Clooney built his entire career on mm. one for them, one for me. Um, but even Clooney's, like, it's not, it doesn't work that way anymore. He can get movies, you know, like he, he did the Midnight Sky for Netflix because he's George Clooney and they don't have more money than they know what to do with. So they go, Oh, George Clooney. Well, as long as you act in it, as long as you're on screen too, sure. You can have whatever you want and go do it. Um, and you know, maybe what Damon and Affleck are doing now, this actor's equity, maybe that sort of helps. I, I but I really don't know. Uh, what I do know is that the studios are not putting money into smaller movies. And yeah. this is why we have no Shawshank Redemptions. We have no, you know, I mean, I don't, don't even, yeah, your friend is 100% right. As, as we know, everything is a sequel or a reboot or whatever. Mm. I think, if anything, Oppenheimer being a three-hour drama that's maybe closest kin is JFK. It did make me want to go out and rewatch JFK again. Actually, <laughs> right? after me too. Because me too. it felt very. If I, if I didn't see any credits, and then somebody afterwards went, "That was a good Oliver Stone movie." I'm like, "That's who made it." Did it felt very yeah, yeah. sort yeah. of very very to of that yeah that vibe. So I mean, I you know, if anything, I think Oppenheimer shows that people are starved for fresh stuff i mean that's and, and that's a true story and it's based on history so it's not even fresh in and of itself it's still ip it was, you know the american prometheus book right but it shows that there was nobody in there with a cape the lead guy has been a support for you know in supporting roles for in features at least for his, you know, his 20, entire career 20 years now yeah yeah um with the exception of 28 days later 28 weeks later and uh you know, people were like, yes, yes, give me that. Give me that. I was very happy to see Killian in a starring role because I remember watching this little Irish film years ago, probably mid-90s or very early 2000s called Disco Pigs, where Killian just plays this sort of crazy rebel type. Uh, he's just left high school sort of character. And I'm like, that guy's unique. I like Killian Murphy. I always used to pronounce it Cillian because I didn't know any better. And it begins with a C. Um, <laughs> and I've, so I've followed his career as he's gone through little role to little role to then be in Peaky Blinders, which was a star in TV role for him to just popping up in Christopher Nolan movies now and again. And then so to see him getting a star in role, it's pretty cool. He's, he's done good. The only one he hasn't been in was Interstellar. The only Nolan film. He's probably in there somewhere, probably hiding in the corn or something. I mean, since like Warner Bros. Obviously, he's not in Insomnia and he's not in um, uh, The Prestige. But yeah, I think he's had like, you know, the Sandman is in all three Batman movies, I think. The second one, he's got one scene in the parking garage in the beginning, Dark Knight. The third one, I think, is fairly similar. He's like in the courtroom, the the like courtroom that Bane puts on and all his minions put on. He's in Dunkirk. He's he the guy they pick up uh, on the boat. Yeah, he's been in like yeah, yeah. every Nolan movie since Warner Brothers, I think, except for Interstellar. But yeah, so so to switch off this rough topic, yeah, I I think I was a bit overwhelmed by Oppenheimer at first. 
because I saw, I got to see it in 70, 70 millimeter IMAX and it was just astonishing, but I didn't, I didn't know the history much. No, I didn't. Obviously I know, you know, Trinity and how everything happened. I didn't really know. So I found myself in places going, I'm not quite following maybe what's happening. So maybe I have to read up on some things, uh, but it didn't dampen my enjoyment of the film at all. Maybe because he trained me for that with Tenet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Where I was yeah. like, I have no fucking clue what's happening. But that was it, a it looks, good it looks film. great. What happened in it? I don't know, but yeah. it just looked I good. I don't I'm know, but it was again amazing. And, and I know yeah. it's one of those things like, I okay, okay, Chris Nolan, I know you're smarter than I am. <laughs> right? Like, I know. He's just got and, more money than you. That's what it is. Clearly, we know like, you've only got 1.9 million. So. I was given the script to Inception before it was made because I was had worked for Ken Watanabe. And when he, you know, they said, oh, Ken's going to do this Nolan movie again. I was like, oh, my God, can I read it? And they slipped me the script. And I was reading that script going, what? What? <laughs> not, what? not a clue. <laughs> I was literally flipping pages back, like trying to understand who had been where. And obviously it's a lot different before there's faces you can put to it. And, and sort of like, okay, that's okay. Cobb is that guy. Okay, God. You know, but um, reading it, I was like, I don't understand what the fuck is happening. <laughs> it's a bit like me after the film. I'm like, but see, when I, I saw it, the movie for me, I totally got it. Like I just got it. We had to talk about it. My, my wife at the time and I drove to a coffee shop immediately after like 10 minutes from the theater and sat literally for 45 minutes and dissected everything. And, uh, and, and, Oh, what? Oh, but could it have been? Oh, no. Oh, he would talk to. Oh, that's right. And we were like fully like animated about it and like really into it. And then I think I went and saw it in the theater like six more times. I was like, this movie blows my mind. And he's obviously Nolan is obsessed with parallel timelines. You know, he does it. He does it in in Dunkirk where it's like one hour, one day, one week. Yeah. Um, Which even that for me was a little hard to like wrap my brain around. Um, he does it in interstellar one day on the planet is 24 years on this, you know, uh, up in space or for people on earth. Um, so he's always done that. And so in Oppen- in Oppenheimer, when he's doing it too, the, you know, the black and white being more quote unquote, the, the more present, modern day. Yeah. yeah. And, and everything else being the buildup, it took me a while to like figure that out. Cause I was like, well, wait a minute. What, at what point are we in time now? But yeah, I mean, as a film, it's a film that I think will be studied for years to come. And how good was that music score? Oh, yeah. Oh, I got it right away. Same. <laughs> same. Yeah. Also, just the sound design and, the, and that they had had that finished in some sense long before the film was released because that, that sound that I thought was a train or something in the trailers that chung, 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 chung. I was like, God, that's crazy. That sound. What the hell is that? Is that the energy of the bomb? And then, you know, spoiler alert, it's people stomping their feet in a, before he gives a speech. I was like, God, that's incredible, man. How was Um, the sound mix in your IMAX? Because I watched it in non, you know, just regular big screen 
and there were a couple of old women sat next to me. And I, what I noticed about Oppenheimer is a lot of the audience was made up of people that generally don't go to the cinema very much. You know, they, they probably <laughs> Lately, went to see especially. Private Ryan and Titanic and Braveheart and all that sort of stuff. And they were sat right next to where I was. And at the end, I thought, you know, I'm going to ask them what they thought of the film. And they said, we liked it, but we couldn't hear the dialogue in a lot oh, of places, which is a common thing with Chris Nolan movies because he mixes it for the IMAX and then just doesn't downgrade it for anything else. Yeah, well, I didn't see it in a normal cinema, so I don't know. I didn't have any issues hearing any of it, but I did, for example, with Interstellar, the first time I saw it was at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood, and there were whole chunks where... Passed away. No. um, uh, Yeah, she's in it, but I mean the other one, the redhead. Uh, um, not Bryce Dallas Howard, but no, the, the, <laughs> the one, the one no. that looks exactly like Bryce Dallas Howard, <laughs> Jeff, uh, Gen- uh, Chastain, Chastain. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Jessica <laughs> Chastain. Yeah. Whole chunks where she was talking like in the lab on earth where I just didn't know anything she had and was said. That, I'm guessing that was non IMAX that you saw it in. It was non IMAX. Now the yeah. Egyptian is just a normal cinema. So I just was like, wow, I hope I wasn't supposed to understand anything in that (laughs) apparently that is is because chris nolan mixes it perfectly for imax and then they're like what about the other screens he's like they want to watch it properly go watch an imax he just Uh, doesn't do anything else with it i mean and it was like that for dark knight rises which i worked on but i feel like that's just tom hardy being tom hardy (laughs) pretty much (laughs) especially with a mask on his face well that's the thing because he just like (laughs) (laughs) and you're like what is he talking about god i'm gonna watch this subtitles when it comes out (laughs) and then don't and then dunkirk flying a plane yeah it's like you're just doing bane again aren't you yeah and then (laughs) and then you watch him on peaky blinders and like alfie well i just have no idea (laughs) he sounds like he's got a cold Does Tom Hardy a lot of the talks like this sort of yeah. thing? He's like he's like, got block nose. I'm just like, oh well, he Love just him. doesn't think I need to hear his dialogue, so that's fine. We know what he's saying, even if we um, can't hear him. Anyway, Oppenheimer, yeah, excellent. Um, like you, I've not seen Barbie. I kind of hate to admit it, but uh, it's made 1.3 billion, and they're not worried about my oh, 16 my bucks, so I'll watch it at home. I watched Gran Turismo this week. I'd see that if it was anybody other than Neil Blomkamp, I wouldn't be interested because I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm good, thanks. But the fact that he's involved and he's directed that film makes me into because I've liked all of Neil Blomkamp's films, some more than others, but I like them all. So really? I, I do want to watch Grand Turismo. So you feel you feel you feel pretty good about Chappie and Demonic? Yeah, I love Chappie. And... I have the soundtrack and everything. Really, Blu-ray. Okay. I like Chappie. I like Elysium, District Nine, obviously. It's yeah, great. Yeah. Um, so Grand Turismo does. I got to tell you, man, me. it was a good time at the movies. It, um, it's, uh, I think David Harbour carries the full weight of the movie. He's just fantastic in it. He's definitely channeling, you know, Hackman and Hoosiers. Uh, and it's great. He's just great. And uh, Orlando doesn't have as much to do, but he's also very good. He's uh, just, you know, his energy around this kid and the fact that it's a true story. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know really anything about it. So afterward, there were some things that I looked up that I was like, did that really happen? Did that really happen? And the internet said, yes, it did. And yes, it did. And I was like, wow, crazy. Okay. I figured they just engineered that to goose the drama a bit, but no, that's wild. Okay. I'm into it. 
Um, even the ending, uh, which I won't spoil, but like, I was like, did that really happen? Yes, it did. Wow. Great. Very cool. So, um, yeah, obviously visually stunning. And, uh, I think sets a pretty high bar for Kaczynski and the Brad Pitt formula one movie in terms of the way that they shoot it. He, he's, uh, Blomkamp did some shots that I don't think I'd ever seen in another racing movie where it was like, wow, that's a really different way to do that. That's very cool. So yeah, highly recommend and recommend in the, in, in the cinema if you can swing it. I was uh, hoping to go watch Strays this week, but I've not managed to go watch that yet. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's one I'll go, I'll, I'll wait for, I'll watch it at yeah. home. I think it looks cute and funny, but I'll watch it at home. I've seen a lot of the majors. I haven't seen Indiana yet. I'll probably end up picking that up on Blu-ray. That was one I just didn't manage to get to go see for various reasons, but I've seen Dead Reckoning Part 1. It'll be on digital on Tuesday. It is, yeah, so I'll probably just pick it up there and watch it in the privacy of my own home. I've seen Flash. I've seen Mission Impossible. I've seen Oppenheimer. Yeah, we talked about Flash a little bit last time. Um, I'm I'm just curious. So tell me what what did you, because it didn't work for me. Basically, everything with Keaton, I I just was like, this is great. Um, spoiler alert, he does not survive the film, which apparently was a reshoot. Uh, really? Okay. Yeah. Cause he was, Keaton was supposed to be the Nick Fury of the DC universe. Right. Keaton was going to stay in the flash in Barry's current universe and then create the justice league or whatever and oversee everybody and he had shot scenes in batgirl and then they mm-hmm. obviously threw that, that movie yep. um and so when that happened and then when saffron and and james gunn came in they were like no 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 no, no. we're not doing any of that so we don't need him to carry on and then i guess uh Muschietti was like well we can get some good drama out of that if you're not if you don't need him for other movies now we can we can actually kill him off. That's a shame. Though. Um, it's like, don't be killing Keaton yeah. off as part of our childhood. Come yeah. on, let us I, have something. I mean, I liked his last kind of line, uh, which was nice. And actually, the way they built him into it was kind of cool. You know, the, the idea of he accidentally killed a parent in front of the child, which is what happened to him, obviously. And I thought that was cool. But uh, it bummed me out that they killed him off. And yeah, I just... the. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Ezra Miller, two Ezra Millers was just too much for me. <laughs> yeah. His him his personality is a little bit he's just kinda like screaming and calm loud <laughs> and ener- too much energy and he's like I'm just like, oh God, two of them now for the whole movie. Um the supergirl I thought she was quite good. Yeah. She was um, I'd like to have seen more of her role. Yeah. I think. Some of the visual effects, and I know they've said that this was a choice and I, and it's clear that some <laughs> yeah. of it was yeah. whenever they were, when he was in the center of like the hurricane of stuff, but it looked bad. And I don't know why you would make a choice to make it look bad. That's the thing, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I get that the machete's going, Oh, we, we wanted it to look like that. We didn't want it to look realistic. There's ways to do that without making it look not great. I think, especially without budget. Well, you it's just not like kind it was a fifteen like, million dollar movie, was it? I mean, I guess put them in a kind of a fog or something. And they kind of were in the yellow fog or whatever. But you know, Ron Livingston, his Barry's dad, like coming out of it, and they looked. You know what it looked like? <laughs> it looked like when the Terminator goes into the 
into the vat of liquid metal at the end and he comes back up and he morphs into the things that he'd already been. So he morphs into the cop and then he morphs into Jeanette Goldstein for a second. And then he, and that looked cool. That looked real in, in some sense, Mm. but this looked like a weird sort of PlayStation version of that. And not high quality and not, they all looked digital and fake. So I know that they weren't supposed Mm. to look like they were of the world or whatever plane that Barry was on at that moment, but they didn't just not look that way. They looked bad. It is a weird style choice. If that's in fact what it was, I feel like I'm I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that they looked at that going, brilliant you've nailed it guys and girls yeah no i feel like they looked at it like we're either out of time or out of money but whoever whatever companies whoever those shots belong to i mean i wouldn't be putting those on the reel (laughs) (laughs) no No. (laughs) on the on the vfx breakdown because god they didn't look good the other stuff i mean i know the last time we talked you mentioned the the first sequence with the saving the babies as the building goes down and like i kind of i mean i was into the sequence i guess and and setting up his speed that he's you know put the one baby into a microwave that was quite funny and um but again i didn't think it looked good oh god no no it didn't i was having this conversation with rob who who podcasts with me as well and we were on about that and i said well i kind of understand that not looking real because you've started watching the movie do you really want to see really realistic looking babies falling out a skyscraper maybe not but yeah i remember in the cinema going babies don't look great but i was just along for the ride and the silly story and seeing michael keaton again and and uh stuff like that so it was a popcorn flick for me but i'm the sort of person that could sit down and rewatch the cat from outer space and go that's still amazing (laughs) the effects may not (laughs) hold up but it's still a fun movie that's the thing though i feel like we're being we're being taught to accept mediocre now and that's the bummer is like I spend, I mean, my kid's only four, but I spend a lot of time showing him old movies. And when I say old, I'm not talking about, you know, like really old. I'm talking about like like, Charlie Chaplin or anything. Yeah, no, I'm talking about like (laughs) early Pixar. I'm talking about like, you know, WALL-E, which is what, 2010, maybe 2008, something like that. Mm. Um, Tonight we were showing him uh, Inside Out. Oh, it's a good movie. Yeah. And, and so I'm like, where, even now, where are these movies for him? I mean, yes, they just did Elemental. So you can kind of still count on Pixar to, to pull out a, a, a good film. But, um, I'm just like, wow, what, what, what am I going to take him to the cinema to see? Because if I take him to the cinema, I want it to be something really cool. Right. Mario, maybe might have fit into that, which I haven't uh, seen. So I don't well, he hasn't played cool. the games. He's watched the movie because we already you know, had access to it. But, um, even that I was like, I know it made a billion dollars. It was kind of just loud and I didn't really do much for me. He likes it, but again, he's four at this point. So I think a lot of the time he's just responding more to like color and movement and <laughs> things yeah. like that, but he's fully into Wally. He'll watch Wally start. Wally's to finish. amazing. That's and it's brilliant. And it's yeah. a brilliant movie. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, so I I don't know. I just think like I didn't hate the Flash, but I definitely didn't care for it. I don't think I'll ever watch it again. I think I'll probably watch it once more in a few years when I'm, you know, when I can't remember any of it and I feel a need to just see Helen Slater and Christopher Reeve looking not quite realistic, but they're kind of Well, there. that's the, that's so, the thing you know. too. I had heard about <laughs> it and so I was waiting for it and I was, and, and the Nick Cage, I was like, I was excited. I was like, oh my God, okay, well, I'll at least get that as like a reward for sitting through this thing that's almost three hours yeah, and then I got to, it and I'm like, oh fuck, they don't look good either. No. <laughs> they look like one dimensional, like the pieces of paper hanging there. Yeah, uh, even the Nick Cage, I'm like, he's still around. Just ask him to go on a green screen for one day to Warner Brothers. Don't CG him <laughs> from a like, documentary. <laughs> it's yeah, like, I was don't like, do it. Fuck. <laughs> um. Yeah, man. I don't know. And then to put George Reeve in there. George yeah, Reeve, see, George he's one I almost, missed. He he's, he like he hated Superman. Yeah, he won. He committed suicide. You know what I mean? Like he he couldn't ever escape the role. So even to put him in there, I'm like, I hope his estate got some money out of that because otherwise, like that's kind of insulting to make him into that movie. Christopher <laughs> Reeve, fine. Nick Cage is a funny wink to anybody that even knows what the hell that that is. Um. Helen Slater is still around, so she would have gone, yeah, it's fine, whatever, put me in. I'm yeah, good. send me the check. Yeah. <laughs> I need the check, please. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just, oh, no. it just, it just uh, did, not, did not catch me. I think I'm going to start staying away from people talking about movies, I think, certainly on Facebook, because he just seems so angry and venomous at <laughs> like, everything that comes out now, and it's... It's like, if you don't like it, just just move on. But <laughs> well, I used to tell people nobody sets out to make a bad movie. No. You know, like whatever the movie is, whatever, whatever you think is horribly bad. And I mean, some of mine could be on there. Girlfriend, I looked the other night, does not have a very high um, Rotten Tomatoes score at all. And I looked up because when you're in the iTunes uh, thing, you can look up one sentence of a review for, you know, for like the New York Times or something. So I read those and I was like, well, I don't remember it, it getting sort of panned by places. But when people go out there to make a movie and spend a year of their life on it or whatever, um, yeah. if they're the director or writer or producers, they're not trying to make, they're not trying to waste anybody's time and they're not trying to make something bad. So, um, some movies don't work and there are so many variables that are impossible to control and you just never know. You, you really, you know, there's somebody said there's, there's the movie you see in your head and then there's the movie you make and then there's the movie you end up with. And they're three radically different things. And it's and I, true. I, I think this is where a lot of so-called film fans are going wrong because how many times do you say, well, what I would have done is, and it's like, yeah, but if I watch Sean's movie, then I am watching the story that Sean, the director, is telling me. If I'm reading a book that you've written, then my imagination gets to imagine like what your face looks like and not unless you describe it and whatnot. So I think this whole, oh, I would have made the film differently than Sean did, what Sean should have done was this, that, and the other, it drives me insane. Well, I guess I, the difference I would say is if it's a filmmaker who's having that conversation, then then that's a different story. Mm. But 
nine out of ten or it's or not le- it's just somebody who, who are not filmmakers they're they're couch quarterbacks who think you know yeah. they could do it and i'm like well if you want to do it go take do your it. iphone this weekend and go shoot something and watch how different it ends up than what you thought you were going to do or watch how you had to make a weird cut because the sound didn't work or mm-hmm. You had to rush the end of the day because the sun was setting and it wasn't going to match and you couldn't have that actor tomorrow and blah, blah, blah. And then try and tell me, (laughs) you know, I would have done this. Well, okay. If you think that would have been possible, first of all, you'd have to understand the parameters of the day that they were dealing with. How many pages were they shooting? Where were they shooting? What was involved in that? What permissions did they have or not have at a location? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And the average person has no idea. You know, I'm I'm in the process of about to start making a documentary about how I wanted to make a film, but the film just never worked and never <laughs> became a thing. And I think that'll be a good documentary. You're doing like um, a Terry Terry Gilliam, only he got yes, to eventually kind of like make that, his. But yeah, but he eventually got to make his, whereas mine won't come out. So I'm just going to try and morph it into a documentary about. Hey, I wanted to make a movie because I figured it would be easy. Guess what? It isn't. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's what I'm working on at the minute, but. Uh, yeah, I just think, um, again, if you've made a film, I mean, look, I, I watched my friend's film and I I actually had thoughts like that. Oh, I, I probably would have done this or I would have had that character not say that because you could have, I think, gotten more mileage out of him being scarier if he just didn't sort of say what he intended. But I'm watching it because I'm watching my friend's film I didn't tell him those notes because the movie's done, but I did have the thought, oh, if he showed me an earlier cut, I would have suggested this and this and this. And I actually do think it would have helped. Have you ever had, and obviously I'm not going to ask you to name names or anything, but (laughs) you've probably seen films that a lot of people you know have made. Have you ever watched one where you're like, my God, this is terrible? Because I've had that. I've had filmmakers who I've spoke yeah. to and they're like, do you want to send you a screener link? And I'm like, oh, yes, please. And then I watch the film and go, I don't even know how I'm going to review this because it was dreadful. Yeah. And I usually do manage to craft a positive but not a, you know, not a lying review out of it, going, it'd be great if they had more money type thing. But that's, that's never a fun situation to be in. I mean, honestly, whenever you get screening invites to your friends' projects, which granted, uh, you know, living over here, I haven't had one in years, but you all, I mean, I'm actually just to put it another way, my family <laughs> coming to my screening <laughs> told me that they were always terrified. <laughs> they were always like, what if we think it's awful? What do we say? What do we, we're going to be standing there after their screening and we're going to have to look at them and go, oh, you know, congratulations or whatever. But inside we're going to be thinking, holy Christ, it's a fucking disaster. Um, unfortunately, you know, they said that in the context of, we're so glad. Yeah, glad it wasn't. <laughs> We're bad. so glad that we liked <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I've uh, as soon as you started asking the question, one project fairly recently, uh, within the last four or five years, sprung to mind. This person, this this producer, I I had calls with where I said, "Is there any anything you can do?" about this moment. Is there any? Did you shoot anything else? Any footage? I mean, even like. Can you just cut out of it earlier? Does it work? Like, let me watch the scene back and see if you can just get out of it sooner. Uh, you know, and, and I tried to give notes and 
the movie is what it is and it didn't do anything and it didn't make any waves and it just kind of like fizzled out and and this producer i think has since uh gone on to work on some much bigger projects but as a, more of a line producer production supervisor because the process of carrying this thing from development all the way through and then trying to impress upon the director some ideas in post to say like i really think we should maybe do this and the director was like no don't want to do that and so the movie you get is the movie you get uh i've definitely had that where i've just been like god you know <laughs> it's I just awkward feel, isn't it there in this particular movie which won't give anything away but there was there's a there's kind of like a shootout at the end and i don't understand how they shot it you just had no sense of who was where and literally, as you were watching it, you were confused about who's he shooting at? Is, is he shooting at the person hiding over there? Is he shooting the person hiding over there? I just am so lost in this very small exterior space. Like it would have been very easy just to kind of get an establishing, get a master. So you put people in their positions and then you start punching in the close-ups. But I guess the the stunt that they had planned right at the top that would lead to everybody like, you know, going into their specific hiding places or whatever didn't quite look great. So they had to cut it in a weird way that it, you didn't like, you saw the, the thing that starting it and then they cut out of it before anything happened. And then all of a sudden people were in different places and you're like, wait, what's going on? And they were like, yeah, we just didn't have time. We couldn't reshoot it. It didn't make any sense editor did what they could and that's what we have hopefully was, the audience won't notice but like, first oh, so the audience notices everything now yeah and i was like this is your whole thing this is the whole third act conference i mean it all comes to this confrontation and now it's incomprehensible and it's I, like and, you said and, though nobody sets out to yeah to make a bad movie it's but unfortunately sometimes things go wrong and yeah. Well, and also, I mean, I, I think it was a learning experience for this producer. It was the first, you know, solo producing credit. And, um, I didn't ask where were you when this sequence yeah. was being shot? I didn't, I didn't want to say like, you know, didn't you like stop the director and go like, Hey, 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 hey wait. Cause he, cause he clearly didn't. Let's so, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, we need to, we need to, I don't know, add a day of pickups or something tomorrow, like in the morning. Mm -hmm. We need to come back and get this first piece because we don't have it. Um, or also, and I don't know, I don't remember what the budget was, but like on our film, both of my last two films, we had the editor cutting while we were shooting, which is not a luxury that many indies can have these days. Uh, the bigger movies do it pretty routinely now, but the purpose of it is to, to, to be able to have the editor start putting things together and be able to call you and be like, hey, you guys are still in the coffee shop, right? And you'd be like, yeah, what's up? You need a shot of blah, 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 blah. Because I don't have connective tissue between this thing and that thing. You got to get me a shot of this. And you go, okay. And you go over the AD and you go, hey, we, we, need, to, we need to add a shot. So how do we do it? Um, I don't think this producer had that either the money to be able to afford that which seems weird because you think you're just backing up post from rap to you know whenever but 
I don't think they had their editor on board. Maybe they didn't even have, you know, the person that they wanted to cut it available by that point. But in any case, these things happen. (laughs) And when they got into editorial, there it was. There it is. What what do we do? And the result, the, the, the answer to that question was, the only thing we can do is cut out of this stunt before it looks like shit. <laughs> and by doing that, we will lose the geography of everyone running away in the aftermath of the stunt. Yeah. And it'll make Sean go, hang on a minute. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll look at yeah. your film and go like, where's the shot of everyone like spreading out to their respective places? No. <laughs> so, you know, it's crazy. Anyway, uh, anything else you've seen lately that you loved? I saw, I mean, I didn't love it, but I saw that William Friedkin had passed away, mm. yeah. which made me immensely sad yeah. um, for, for lots of reasons because I love his movies. But also we were Twitter buddies. Oh, he, okay. was, he started following me many years ago, and you can imagine what it's like for a film geek to Incredible. go, oh, William Freakins follow me on Twitter. That's insane. Incredible. And periodically he would retweet things, and I would he would like things, and it just made me feel really sort of happy and giddy and, and stuff. I hadn't seen him online for a while, and then I got the press release, the, you know, the, the news alert saying he'd passed away, and it was – I mean, obviously the older you get, you lose these titans more and more. of your childhood yeah. more and more, and it's – yeah, kind of I sucks. will. Um, well, Spielberg was trending on Friday or something, and I, my heart skipped a beat. I was oh, like, yeah, oh, I'm, not ready for, I'm not ready for that. Oh. I was like, fucking hell, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Why is he trending now? He doesn't have a movie out now. What's happening? And I like scrolled, and then it wasn't immediately like anything specific. It was just like all general stuff. And I was like, wait, where's the news? Where's the news? You know? And then it would turn out to be nothing. So, but like, yeah, we're getting to a point. I mean, what Scorsese's eighty, Spielberg seventy five, John Clint Williams, Eastwood's in his nineties. Yeah, John, John Williams, Williams ninety two. We're, we're gonna lose a lot. It's it gonna, sucks. it's gonna start to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's off. And by the way, two of my favorites of all time are already long gone, which is Sidney Pollack and Lumet. I love Lumet. Um, two of my two of my favorites. You know, I don't think it gets better than like. Dog Day Afternoon and Tootsie and Q and A. I love Q and A. I think that's my favorite Nick Nolte film. Q and A before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which was Lumet's last film, like with with Phil Hoffman also gone. I mean, fuck, yeah. It's just uh, some we lost early, horribly. Like Hoffman, Lumet went fairly young. I think you know Bob Barker just died. He was ninety nine. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, we're going to start to now see more of that. And it's, uh, in some way, every day that I wake up and, and know that like Jack Nicholson and Gene Hackman are retired, but still out there is yeah, a good day. Uh, yes, and, and it when it comes down the pike that those guys have shuffled off, I'm going to, uh, uh, Hoffman, all these guys, that's the other thing. And I don't want to get on another tangent cause we're already talking over, over an hour now, but mm. like we don't have actors like, like those we don't at all. And, the, and that's part of kind of what people are saying about the studios now is they are not fostering those people in the way that they used to. They're not taking the time to build movie stars 
No, they're, um, they're just sort of cut and paste. Well, they probably will yeah. cut and paste them at some point with YouTube <laughs> yeah. if they get their not, way. They're, they're, not, they're not taking, again, they're not taking risks. They're not trusting filmmakers. You know what I mean? Like we have, why do we have Pacino really? Because Coppola. They didn't want him. The studio didn't want him. For God's sakes, they wanted Robert Redford to play Michael. Like, are you fucking kidding me? They they didn't want him. They they didn't want Hoffman for the graduate. Like the filmmakers like, no, that's who I want. That's who I want. And these guys became stars for decades because they were fantastic actors. They are fantastic actors. So it's weird to look what we have now. And I'm, I'm happy with like, you know, the, the Hemsworth, I'm, I'm happy with Chris Hemsworth. I think the guy's charismatic as hell. He's muscular. He's good looking. He's a movie star. Um, but he's not thought of in a movie star way, you know, he stars in Netflix movies. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So it's just like, even that is like, we're, we're going to start losing all these true greats and we don't really have people to fill their shoes. At that and level. That's, that's that very level. sad. It makes you look back to when you were growing up watching all the films and the movie stars, and it just makes you just want to go back and live there, I think. It does yeah. me. I've been watching lots of older films, yeah, lots of old Clint Eastwood films, uh, watching those again rather than watching. I don't feel the need to make sure I watch every new film that's out now because I can't do it. Yeah. It's too many of them. Not interested. I'd rather go back and watch Escape from Alcatraz. But my, you know, my dad came of age with gary cooper and john wayne and stuff like that and the westerns um but through the 60s and into the 70s and into the 80s he wasn't hurting for manly men in cinema you know and he wasn't hurting for phenomenal character actors who were expanding out of supporting roles into leads and just being like incredible like hoffman and people like that so there was never a point where like my dad had to look back fondly on the past and go, wow, that's when movie stars were started because we had more of them. <laughs> there were, yeah. there were continual equivalents or better versions of, you know, of Cary Grants and stuff like that. So, or we just had them stick around, you know, like from the fifties through the, through the nineties, even like Jack Lemon and guys like that real presence, yeah. Michael Caine, you know, so so now when all these guys leave, what, I'm, I just don't know what we have. <laughs> I'm, who knows? Timothy Chalamet's, or, or, or I don't know. Nothing against Timothy Chalamet. No, I mean, but, he's, he's, you know, he's a good actor. There's yeah, no doubt yeah. about that. And he's a good looking kid. But I don't know that he has, at least now, the sort of gravitas of, uh, I mean, even like Josh Brolin, who he's, who he's in the Dune movies with. Like Josh Brolin yeah. is a whole... Who knew back in the Goonies, but like he's Nobody. a very like formidable performer and also very likable on screen and can do like a whole range of stuff. I just don't know if there's any younger guys out there that are that are equaling that. Fingers crossed there will be so, but I can't think of any off the top of my head at all. Yeah. It's a very different know. world nowadays. Barry for... Kogan, maybe. He could do interesting stuff. Possibly. Yeah, but I do like. I don't know. I, I mean, like the guy, everyone. I think everyone I've just mentioned, Hackman, Nicholson, these people are icons. They're they're like put them on a T-shirt, you know. Little Bill from Unforgiven. I mean, fuck. There's mm. just you can't. Who if you made Unforgiven today, who plays that role? 
there's nobody. I can't think of a single person who's like 30 or under who could play that role and be dangerous. That's pretty much what I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the evening. I'm going to try and recast that role. <laughs> so if you get some weird tweet in a couple of days with just some actor's name, that's my attempt <laughs> to try to recast all right. it. Who's but, your, uh, yeah. All right, think about that. And we'll yeah. end there. Who's your little Bill in Unforgiven? Not that they'd make Unforgiven today because they wouldn't. And they wouldn't like the anti-gun message. They'd say it's a woke movie and whatever the fuck. But like, okay, who cast cast those top three? Who's William Money? Who's Ned? And who's Little Bill? We'll we'll leave out um, English Bob because I think you know you could get a you could get like a Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston could be an English Bob or yeah. you know somebody like that. But uh. But and yeah. if any of our 15 listeners, maybe it's gone up to 16 now, <laughs> uh, tweet at 16, uh, stage 16 podcast, at 16, yeah. stage 16 pod, got remember yeah. on Twitter, but, uh, or, or threads or blue sky or yeah, yeah. one of the 75. Tell us, tell us who's your William money and who's Ned and who is little bill. All right. Thank you, Stuart. This, uh, this is uh, episode five of ours. Um, and, uh, Hoping, uh, hoping we have more to talk about next month. Definitely. Take care, Sean. <laughs> All right. <man. laughs> Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.